Welcome to Change Nation, a program brought to you by First30Days.com. On this episode of Change Nation, Ariane talks with Lawrence Gonzalez, author of the book Everyday Survival, Why Smart People Do Stupid Things. Here's Ariane. Hi, and welcome to Change Nation. I'm Ariane, and I have the pleasure today of having Lawrence Gonzalez in the studio with me. Lawrence is the author of Everyday Survival, Why Smart People Do Stupid Things. And he's here today to explain how your character, your ability to think, and other things can better help anyone deal with change and surviving possibly something that could happen in our lives. Lawrence, real pleasure to have you on the show and in the studio. Thanks for having me. So Lawrence, how did you start with looking at how people survive things? Did you go through something where you had to find that within yourself? I think it started with my father, who was a combat uh, pilot in World War II. He was shot down over Germany, and his plane was pretty much blown apart to pieces that had the glide characteristics of a bathtub. And he was in one of them and fell 27,000 feet, never got out, never got a parachute, and survived it. And wow. by, by the way, that's not a record. If people want to look this up on the internet, um, but he fell twenty-seven thousand feet. Every when I was a little kid, my mother used to make a special celebration on the date that he fell on January twenty-third. There'd be a special meal, and she'd make a cake. And I was a little kid. I thought, why are we doing this? It's not Christmas. It's it's not his birthday. And gradually, I heard these amazing stories about my father, and I started to think deeply, even as a child, about survival. So what was it about him or the circumstances? Like, was it the circumstance or was it luck? Well, in my father's case, I believe that um, his surviving that fall was just chance. Mm -hmm. Um, But it got me thinking about it. And the more I thought about it, the more I came across cases where it wasn't chance, where, in fact, people participated in their own ability to to survive by things other than equipment and training. So, for example, we'd come across a case where um, a person with a pack full of things that he could have used to save himself was found dead in the wilderness. So why did this guy die if he had everything he needed? And we'd find cases where, you know, a young girl would walk out of the jungle completely alone with no equipment at all and, and survive. Why did she survive instead of perish? And those kind of cases made me realize that it's it's not equipment and training. There's something subtle and important here. And so that got me on, on the path of investigating that. And, and with the help of modern brain science, I began to learn about it. So what are three, four characteristics of people who you and your research can probably predict will help someone get through something? Well, the first characteristics of, of people who tend to survive is that they tend to take responsibility for themselves in all kinds of situations, in everyday situations, um, so that when something bad happens, they are prepared to behave that way. I I refer to this type of person that I call the whiner. This is the type of person you don't want to be with in a survival situation who is always complaining, always expecting to be rescued, uh, always blaming someone else when bad things happen. And so having this internal view of the world where you regard yourself as the source of of what you need is is a characteristic of people who do well in survival situations. Give me another couple. Now now you've got me hooked. Well, people who naturally tend to stay calm and aren't readily excitable tend to do better because 
emotion and reason work like a seesaw. The higher your level of emotion, the less you're able to think clearly. So if I put you um, in some sort of astronaut training stuff, I can agitate you enough so that you won't remember your phone number if I ask you what it is. That's how bad it gets. Um, and at a certain level of emotion or stress, you can't think at all. You can't function at all. So people who can balance that emotional side with clear thinking and remaining calm do much better, especially if time is a factor. And would you say people who find life situations stressful will typically find a survival event stressful? Are the two like related? So if someone is very stressed by going through a divorce, they are naturally going to be stressed in every other area of their life? No, not necessarily. I, I mean, people can surprise you at times and um, come out of nowhere and do really well in a survival situation. There are lots of cases where you say, wow, that's not the person I would have expected to step forward and lead. But you don't always know what's going on inside of a person when you see the outside. Uh, but there are some kinds of people who um, you just kind of know they're not going to do well. The kind of person who something bad happens and they're screaming, we're all going to die, we're all going to die. You know, this is, this is in a movie, you know, that's mm -hmm. the guy who's going to die, right? Mm -hmm. so, so there is some ability to predict, but, um, but people can definitely surprise you. Lawrence, is it a skill that you think people can learn and be prepared for? I think there's a lot of what might happen in the future is getting us prepared for some tough stuff. Can, yes. can anyone learn it? Yes, I, I think so. And the way what I tell people is that, you know, when something bad happens, that's not the time to start learning. And one of the things I talk about in everyday survival is how because of the way the brain processes information, you're constantly learning something. And what you learn is what you're going to do in the future. That's the way the brain systems are set up. They're essentially set up to process information for the purpose of predicting the future, for how you're going to behave in the future. So if something, if you do something, like you eat a pizza and something good, good happens, you're, you're happy that you ate it, then chances are good that you'll do that again. Um, you know, if you eat it and get sick, you're probably not going to do that again. This essential system means that we are rehearsing something all the time, and we're not necessarily conscious of what we're rehearsing. So it can have very strange effects sometimes. I write in Everyday Survival about a police officer who taught himself to grab a gun out of an assailant's hand. So he practiced with a partner, grabbing the gun over and over again until he got really good at it. And one day out on the street, sure enough, some bad guy pulled a gun on him, and he grabbed the gun out of the guy's hand successfully, completely startled him, and then he handed it back because that's the way he had practiced it. And under the stress of that moment, not thinking, he gives the guy the gun back because that's what he did. Well, our lives are kind of built that way. So we are always doing that. We just don't know what the purpose of our practice is unless we're paying attention to it. So for the people watching this and listening, if they want to get better at getting through tough stuff and we're all going to get our fair share, what are things that they can get going on and do right now? Well, one of the things that I try to do in everyday survival is give people a different view of their world and their behavior so that once they read the book, they can't go back to thinking about it the same way again. So when they start making mistakes, little mistakes that we all make in life, they'll begin to go, oh, yeah, that's that part of my brain that does such and such. And, and it starts to make you focus on, on things in a different way, and you change your behavior. I'll give you a perfect example. 
when, when we see the world, we don't really see the world. We see very simplified models of things in the world. Otherwise, it would take us too long to get around. So once you've got a model of a dog in your head, you don't have to check a chihuahua to see that it's a dog just because the last dog you saw was a great thing. You already know it's a dog and you ignore it. You just go on through these models and, and it makes you very efficient. But this can also trip you up. Um, the other day I was looking for a copy of a book on my bookshelf where I knew I had this book and it was Anne Frank's Diary. And I was looking for that. I wanted to look something up. And I looked and looked and I looked and it wasn't there. And I went all around the house looking at the shelves. And I said to my wife, I can't find this book. And she said, it's on your shelf. This is a mental model problem. And I said, yeah, she's got to be right because I know it's there. And I went back and looked. And in my mind, this was a black book. And in fact, when I finally found it, it was not. It was a beige book. So that mental model I had completely blinded me to this book. And we all have this experience. So once you start to, only because I knew what I had written about mental models was I forcing myself to go back to the shelf saying, you know, I know it's there. I know it's there. I got to see it somehow. But it's amazing how powerful these things are. What is the balance between how much of this is mindset and how much of this is action? That's a good question. That's a very good question. A, a lot of it is the way you pay attention to things. And, and by that, I mean deliberate attention. In our culture, we don't have to pay much deliberate attention because everything gets done for us all the time. But you have to take action, too, to instill these things in, in you internally. Mm -hmm. So until you actually go through the behaviors involved in these things, you may not completely internalize them. Um, but it's amazing the tricks that you're, that these natural systems can play on you, uh, not just not finding books, but in some cases doing really crazy things. One of the things you talk about in the book is the vacation state of mind. Mm -hmm. Is that a state of sort of temporal blindness where we're not aware of things or where we're just lazy? What is it? No, it, I wouldn't call it a form of blindness, although there it's interesting that not finding the book on the shelf is a form of blindness. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's another kind of blindness called inattentional blindness uh, in which something really obvious can be right in front of you and you miss it because you're paying attention to something else. Um, a vacation state of mind is a state of mind in which you're basically getting all the signals that everything you're doing is okay and right and you stop taking in new signals from the environment. And so for example, when the tsunami happened in the Indian Ocean in 2006, I believe it was, uh, these people were literally on vacation. They were on the beach. They'd spent a lot of money to get there. And what does that tell you? It tells you, I'm going to have a good time. You work up this script in your head that says what you're doing, where you are. You create a mental model of the place. And this script is running. And it's very hard to interrupt. So even when they saw the wave, you can watch videos of this on the internet, even when they saw the wave coming at them, they were all still kind of laughing and joking and giggling and like, we're on vacation. Nothing is going to disrupt this vacation state of mind. And then finally, when the wave starts gathering around their feet and they begin to realize they're getting knocked off their feet, then it's too late and, the, and you can see the, the results. Um, the same thing happened at Mount St. Helens in 1980. There were scientists going on the news every day saying, guess what, this volcano is going to blow, and volcanoes get really nasty when they blow, and they can kill you. And the people flocked to this place. The sheriff, the local sheriff, was trying to keep the people away, and people were selling roadmaps to show you how to get up the mountain and get around the roadblocks and go watch the fireworks, right? Mm -hmm. 
So here were people who had been brought up in the United States, and they were used to seeing danger couched in safe uh, surroundings. Like, didn't we see something like this at Universal City? Let's go up this mountain and watch the real thing. Uh, they were camping out on the highway bridges in the valleys below the mountain, you know, drinking beer from coolers. And the only reason that more people weren't killed when it blew was because it was very early on a Sunday morning when it happened. And out of 57 people who were killed, 23 were never even found. So this is a vacation state of mind where you can deny the trembling of the earth and the smoke and the fire and the news and all of these things that you would think a smart person would understand. This means, like, go away, okay? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Lawrence, one question before we take a quick break. Men versus women. Did you look at the research between one being better at surviving things than others? You know, I haven't seen any. Uh, any sort of scientific approach to that question. I've been asked the question many times, and I have met many, many excellent survivors, both men and women, and don't think that there is necessarily a difference in the way they survive. There is a difference in the way they get into trouble. <laughs> it's a little thing called testosterone, and um, and it really does make you take more risk. Now, there are women who have more testosterone than some men. Women have testosterone, too. So there are women who also take more risks. But on average, men have a higher level of testosterone and take more risks and get into more trouble. You're listening to Change Nation from the first 30 days. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Change Nation. I'm Ariane, and I'm speaking with Lawrence Gonzalez. He's the author of Everyday Survival, Why Smart People Do Stupid Things. Lawrence, here are a couple of uh, men. I'd like you to tell me if they're survivors. John McCain. No. Why not? Well, I should qualify that. I think there probably was a period in his life when he was, when he was younger, and I think now... The, the qualities that I consider essential for survival are ones that he may have let go by the wayside over time for whatever reason, um, age, privilege, I don't know. Um, but, but I'll bet that when he was in the military and the wars and all that stuff that he, he was a heck of a survivor. But the way that he behaves today does not strike me as being very good behavior for a survivor. So what qualities in someone like him or him do you find are missing today? He seems angry. Mm-hmm. Survivors tend to get through things by having an essential peaceful core. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you get into a real survival situation, it strips you down to what you are. Mm-hmm. It's like a Rorschach test. You really find out who you are uh, when put to it like that. Um, and I see him behaving in emotional, emotionally unstable ways that suggest to me that, that that's what's at his core now. Uh, people do change over time. See, that, that's the part that's interesting to me, where you don't have these characteristics of survivorship within you. Once you have them, you don't have them for the rest of your life. That's interesting. Well, I think that people are in some ways the sum of their behaviors because the emotional system that you're born with doesn't come pre-assembled. It's assembled out of your experiences and your response to your experiences. So over time you build it. 
and uh, of course there are genetic factors involved, but but it, you can spend a great deal of time rebuilding it. The brain is very plastic. It changes all the time. Anytime you learn something, it makes new connections, hooks mm -hmm. up new neurons and networks. And so you could go out and kind of change your personality over time simply by, you know, doing something, something different from what you're doing now. Barack Obama? I think Barack Obama is very much a survivor in my way of thinking about it. He's pretty much unflappable, which is one of the key things, remaining calm in the face of conflicting information and stress. Um, one of the things survivors do is that they prepare beforehand so they don't get into trouble. One of the ways you do this is by learning stuff. He is a guy who has learned a tremendous amount in order to do what he's doing now. Um, and so he's prepared, he's calm, he's methodical. He also is charismatic. And one of the things that survivors do when they do it right is they're rescuers, they're not victims. In a sense, McCain strikes me as a bit of a victim these days. Uh, and Obama seems very much like a rescuer. I mean, he's behaving like a rescuer. And that's the guy who usually survives. In the you know when the boat's sinking, the guy who's helping you is helping himself. Famous American survivors, men, women. I, I've been thinking about Anne Frank a lot. She's not American, <laughs> but I think she's quintessential. Even though she perished in the end, because during the period of time that she wrote her diaries, she was behaving as a survivor, and you get to see her inner soul in these diaries, and it's a wonderful sort of model for people to read. Um, because it all comes out in there. All of these qualities that I've been talking about come out in there, and she's 14 years old. And it's an, an amazing thing to think about. But I mean, we've got millions of, of great American survivors. Um, Colonel Stockdale from the Air Force, who was shot down in Vietnam and was in um, a North Vietnamese prison camp for eight years, most of that in sol solitary confinement. There is a guy, he died recently, uh, there's a guy who just really exemplifies a way of surviving. One of the things you mention in the book is the importance of having a mantra. Yes. Um, can you explain what a mantra is? And for people who are listening to this, how do they develop a mantra? How do they get clear on what it is for them if they might need it? Well, the, the stories, all of the stories that I've written about that have involved a mantra, um, it has sort of come up out of nowhere at the time. This is one of the things that does seem to uh, come up at the time you need it although it certainly doesn't hurt to develop one beforehand. But this is something that you tell yourself. Um, I talked to a guy who was lost in the Bolivian jungle for weeks, totally alone. Um, and he kept saying to himself, man of action. He just kept repeating that to himself every time he'd get in trouble or feel down, um, which was a lot of the time. He would just say this over and over. And by that, he meant he would do the next thing that was available to him. Even if he thought he might die, he would continue trying. So he kept saying, man of action. But lots of people work out little phrases that mean something to them at that time and repeat them. And you can do that anywhere in your life. I mean, you can do that if you're trying to get through passing the bar as a lawyer. You can do that if you're going through chemotherapy. You can do that if you're cleaning the garage. You know, you can find something that's meaningful to tell yourself. Um, and it doesn't do have to have be original. you have one yourself? Do I have one myself? I think I have different ones for different things. Um, 
you know, as the as the moment strikes me. Mm-hmm. But there's something about rhythmic repetition in the brain that makes us capable of doing more. Many of the survivors I've talked to use numbers and counting. There was one guy who broke his leg in the in the Grand Tetons while he was out on a solo ski trip, middle of winter. He's miles out, and he had to scoot on his butt to, to get home. He couldn't walk. So he had to scoot for four or five days, I forget which it was. And I said, how did you do that? And he said, well, he counted 100 scoots per set, and every 100 he would dedicate to someone or something in his life that meant something to him. So, so he had a goal that he wanted to get back to these people and these activities in his life, and he kept repeating these 100-unit sets. And counting comes in all over the place in, in survival um, situations. Where does faith come into it? Do a lot of survivors pray? Do they believe in a higher power that helped them through this? What I found is that uh, people in life-threatening situations pray even when they don't believe in God. Uh, and there's a kind of prayer that that is, whether you believe in God or you're religious, it doesn't make any difference. There's a kind of prayer that simply is making your intentions known. It's like making a statement of, this is what I'm doing and this is what I'm thinking. And and it's a way of making something clear to yourself. Uh, like keeping a journal is different from just having the thoughts you're having. If you write them down, it does something to them. It changes them in your mind. And when you go back and read them, you're a different person from the person who wrote them. And and praying, I think, has that same quality. It doesn't have to be religious, although it might be. But you've seen it as being one of the characteristics yes. that make people get through things. Definitely, yes. If you put somebody in, somebody in a in a burning building, I guarantee you they're going to be very likely mm-hmm. to start praying. <laughs> Lawrence, what is an emotion or a couple of emotions that are the worst emotions to have when you're in the midst of a crisis. doesn't have to be something traumatic, but really a crisis. What are the emotions for us to avoid? Well, there's a, an emotion that's a kind of collapse. A lot of people experience this. Even trained firefighters, soldiers sometimes experience this kind of collapse in which you give up mm-hmm. and you basically just stop doing things. Um, you don't see clearly your own hope to get out, and so you can just give up. Interestingly enough, doctors who treat cancer describe this to me. They have patients with the exact same diagnosis, and one will fight and get better, and another will just give up and die. Um, so that's a very dangerous one. You have to have motivation and hope and and even joy to survive. Panic is sort of the other end of the scale and is just as bad if you're as I said before, if you're panicking, you can't think, and if you can't think, you can't plan, and if you can't plan, you can't do. So um, those two extremes, I think, are the worst. What I find so fascinating with what you do is, as you know, we're a site and a company and a show all about helping people through change, transitions, some of them being crises, and really looking for lessons that you've done in your research that can apply to someone who is going through a cancer diagnosis, who's going through a job loss, who's going through a divorce, and looking for some of those characteristics that in some ways it's a different type of surviving, but it's at the time for, for people, it is very much them surviving as well. Well, and I also talk to lots of groups that are surviving in a different way, like um, financial investment groups, mm-hmm. where their survival is a financial survival, mm-hmm. and they go through the same things as well. Um, 
Everybody wants to know what's next. That's what being alive is. It's asking what's next. And, and the brain systems I'm talking about are all set up to tell you what's next. And the basic rule is the past equals the future. So whatever happened before, you're going to expect it to happen again. And whatever didn't happen, you'll expect never to happen. So by realizing this, you can understand that that rule isn't always true, especially in modern life. That maybe is statistically true for squirrels over eons of evolution, but it's not so true for us anymore. And the more that you can apply your own logical thinking to that system, the better you're going to be able to manage that system to your benefit. Mm -hmm. And so when you're in those crisis situations, instead of just reacting, you have to do what survival instructors say. They use the acronym STOP. Stop, think, observe, plan. And that means the stop part calms you down. And then you think through, well, like, what are my choices? What can I do? I've, thought of, I've heard of the STOP acronym differently. Stop, take a deep breath, focus on your outcome, pee, praise yourself. That's good, too, yeah, yes. But all of this, you see, is, is aimed at calming you. Mm. The calming comes first, and then your thinking brain can kick mm. in and start mm. to let you know what seems reasonable to do next. Lawrence, last question. What do you feel as a country, as a nation, are the things that we most need to prepare ourselves really collectively for things that we might need to be surviving? Is it environmental? Is it terrorism? Is it health? Is it something that we aren't really yet seeing? I, I think terrorism is something that the government has cynically used to scare people so that they will let the government do whatever the heck they want. Um, I think terrorism is not a real threat uh, in any significant way. It's certainly not a threat to the aviation system that we spend so much uh, money on guarding. Uh, I think thinking about terrorism as a threat to you personally is kind of like thinking about maybe a piano is going to fall out of that apartment building onto your head, and it may indeed happen to you. But it's not one of those things that I stay up worrying about. Um, what I stay up worrying about is that we are going to run out of stuff. We live in a culture that's based on stuff that we all want, and we're going to run out of it. There's not enough oil. There's not enough electricity. There's not enough food. Fresh water. Fresh water is another one. All of this stuff uh, is not going to be around for all of us all the time. By mid-century, when there's 9 billion people in the world, all of whom want the same stuff we want, mm -hmm. It's not going to be a good situation. So unless we begin to learn how to uh, husband our resources more intelligently, there's going to be big trouble. People are going to be fighting over these, these resources, and that means fighting here as well as elsewhere. Um, and so in everyday survival, I write a great deal about what our culture is doing to our way of thinking about how we behave mm -hmm. in the world I say there's a chapter in Everyday Survival called the 10,000-watt light bulb. And the reason it's called that is because it takes you and me 100 watts of energy to exist, just to live. Each of us in America uses 100 times that. So it's as if we'd left on a 10,000-watt light bulb burning somewhere in the house 24 hours a day, all day long, every year. Um, and we can't go on doing that. Lawrence, real pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you very much for having me. Lawrence's book is Everyday Survival, Why Smart People Do Stupid Things. For more information on him, his work, his book, please visit his website at www.everydaysurvival.net. 
You've been listening to Change Nation. I'm Ariane. And for more fascinating interviews, please log on to our website at first30days.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you.